Welcome to another sermon podcast from All Souls Anglican Church, Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Thanks for joining us as we study God's Word together. These weekly sermons are part of the teaching ministry of our church. Have your Bible ready as we begin this week's sermon. And stay tuned when we finish at the end to find out more about us. Now this evening is our sixth sermon in our sermon series on the life of Abraham. And our text this evening is Genesis chapter 14, verses 1 through 16, page 10 in your pew Bible. Now last Sunday we left Abram in worship. He was chastened by our Heavenly Father in loving discipline after his sojourn in Egypt. And the Lord God has now gloriously confirmed the land of Canaan as his and his descendants' possession forever. He then walked the land. He beat the borders, as the old saying goes. Each step, a confirmation of the promise. Walking the borders was a symbolic act of taking possession. And then... Abram settles in the southern highlands near Hebron. But his nephew Lot, as we saw, who had succumbed to worldly temptation, settled in the east, choosing the Jordan Valley for his habitation. Despite the warnings, as witness to Abram's stumbling in Egypt, Lot saw what was pleasing to the eye and chose to live at the boundary of Sodom. He seizes what appears to be the best pasturage in its well-watered valley, another Eden like Egypt, verdant and lush in its prospect. The great trade route between Africa and Mesopotamia passes through that land. In other words, there was a life of ease and a guarantee of increased wealth in his future. Yet Moses tells us parenthetically that this paradise was under judgment. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. In Lot's failure, we were warned how distraction by what is Godless drew him away in separation from God's called out community under Abram. God's church. We learn that great biblical principle to move away from the church is to move toward the world. Now we also learn how the serpent is coiled at the base of this well-watered land of the Jordan Valley. We know from Genesis 3.15 that Moses has tracked this enmity of the seed between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the promise. And so here, a conflict breaks out. Open warfare appears for the first time in the scriptures. A highway, as it were, travels both ways. Now, it may seem to us fairly obvious. Of course, our wealth can travel north, but it also means that danger can come from that northern boundary as well. And so we see in Moses' description this great alliance 
of kings in the North Country that seek to seize the prize of the Jordan Valley for themselves. It's this conflict between the cities of men, the world's oppression is on display, genocide, slavery, rape, and robbery are commonplace. All this is the serpent's work. Lot is seized. His wealth is confiscated. But God is faithful to his promise, and Lot is included in his promise to bless those who bless Abram and to curse those who curse him. So once again, we see the hand of God revealed. This time, he appears as the warrior to save his people. Abram rises up to become that great warrior king. He rises up to become God's instrument of justice. He's victorious over the enemies of God's people. The world's wickedness is destroyed. Now, in order to understand this, as to why Moses would go to such lengths to give us the listing of the various kings, their movements, their conquests, and their final conflict at Sidim, we need to understand the gospel message that is portrayed in the Old Testament concerning warfare. This is where it's first described. But at the heart of warfare is God's presence. God remains present with his covenant people. And all the descriptions that follow, all through the scriptures of the Old Testament, either his presence with them or his withdrawal from them is spelled out and explained in the actions of the Old Testament. After the fall in Genesis 3, we learned how men and women could no longer simply approach God or remain in his presence. Instead, our Heavenly Father graciously reveals himself and his plan to save. Now, aware of sin, Abram's forebears continued to trust in the Lord. They knew that their spiritual condition was paramount. So worship, altar, sacrifice, calling on the name of the Lord were the hallmarks of their lives. And here we have already seen that in the course of Abram's life, as he has left Egypt, taken the land, set up the altars, and called upon the name of the Lord in worship, what's happening? Abram has consecrated himself to worship and serve the Lord alone. It may seem odd to us today, but in the scriptures, battle becomes an expression of God's presence and of worship. How you conduct yourself in war reflected your acknowledgement of God's presence and your fidelity to his covenant on the campaign. There are many examples that I could show you, but the one famous one would be Joshua chapter 5. If you have your Bibles with you, you may want to turn there to have a look. It's at that point before the 12 tribes cross the Jordan River. 
Joshua commanded the people in chapter 3 to consecrate yourselves. For tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. As Israel prepares to march on Jericho, there are three key events. First, the new generation receives the sign of consecration and covenant in circumcision. Next, the first Passover is kept in Canaan. And finally, the messenger of the Lord God Almighty, the captain of the host, sword drawn, confronts Joshua to stabilize and confirm him in the fact that God himself is taking charge. He will be with him. Joshua's response is not to question, but what? To worship, because where he stands is holy ground. He is in the presence of the Lord. That example begins here with Abram. All that we've heard so far in terms of his consecration now are put to the test in the warfare between the seed of promise and the seed of the serpent. That's why, again, we have such a long list to remind us how difficult it would be, ridiculous even, to think that with such a small band of 318 men, Abram would rise victorious over a battle-hardened host. He's the forerunner in his descendants of Joshua, David, and ultimately in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. As we saw in our reading in Revelation 19, the last example of battle and warfare in the scriptures, our Savior is victorious over all those who would oppose him. He has defeated Satan, sin, and death. And finally, ultimately, grasps the kingdom that is his, of which you and I as believers are a part Let's look then at the oppression in verses 1 through 12. Now, the first thing to notice is when Moses sets out how Abram goes to battle in this consecrated worship. He makes plain, you see, in the ordering of this Eastern alliance what actually is standing against him. I mean, these details may seem bewildering to us. I want to give Samantha a medal for the excellent way that she pronounced all their names. The four kings of this alliance. Now these kings in their places, when you check in the references, you find out are all centers of important pagan worship. The first one, the most powerful of all, is Amraphel of Shinar. Shinar is Sumer. In other words, it's ancient Babylon which was the place and then became the actual symbol of godlessness, of ungodly worship. The war captain is Kerdolaomer of Elam. The long list also underlines this, the odds against Abraham's victory and Lot's rescue. Now, what is the appliance's plan? It's a simple one. The pretext for the invasion is rebellion. The five cities of the Jordan Valley, the Pentapolis, have been paying tribute for 12 years to this alliance, but they've stopped. 
Now they have the reason to seize the area for themselves. The tactics are also simple. Follow the king's highway from their great centers in the Tigris-Euphrates southwards and westwards to conquer both sides as they made their approach to the Jordan Valley. Once it's isolated, they can sweep down and punish this group of five city-states located at its southern end. Now, Kerdola Omer is clever. He begins with a psychological masterstroke as the alliance conquers the Rephaites. Why? Because they were famous for their battle prowess. They were tall, like Goliath in height. They were feared, and they easily fell. And so fear and rumor spread south of this conquering army. The cities fall one by one as the alliance moves south. Ethnic cleansing begins, empties the region. So the alliance controls the trade from Egypt to Mesopotamia. Rested and supplied, they're ready to turn their attention to the five city-states that remain. Now, these five city-states take a gamble. They decide to go out and attack first rather than to wait for this host to come upon them. They were no match for these battle-hardened veterans of Kedola Omer. So it was a rout. And with a particular gruesome twist, we learn that the valley had tar and asphalt pits that ooze up in what is now part of the Dead Sea. They're still there. And this is the point in combat where the troops lose their command structure and they surrender to despair. They simply stop resisting. They wait for the blow of death or they throw themselves into these tar pits. They're destroyed and the people scattered. The cities are sacked. And Lot, did you notice something important here in verse 12? of Genesis chapter 14, an important litmus test of Lot's own spiritual shift. Because when we last saw him in chapter 13, verse 12, he had settled where? On the border country of Sodom. But look at verse 12, the second half. He was then near Sodom, but now he is what? He's in Sodom. Moses underlines here the same lesson we learned in Abram. Lot, who had greedily chosen the best of the land, now learns its disastrous consequence. So they seize him and take him away. He's spared, he's not killed, but everything is taken in plunder. It's likely he saw many die, young, old bodies everywhere. All hopes are dead. Those who had escaped fled to the hills, and sometime after one stumbles, into Abram's settlement about 20 miles to the south. Now notice how Abram is victorious in verses 13 through 16, how Moses sets up this contrast. First, the two campaigns between the cities of men who are waging war continually, the strength of the Eastern Alliance, the weakness of the five cities of the Jordan Valley, and now the superiority of the consecrated warrior, God's champion, who is stronger than both, for the battle belongs to the Lord. 
The formal battle lines of the plundering kings contrast with Abram's splitting of his forces in this unanticipated attack by night. There's also the contrast between Abram's covenant faithfulness expressed in his rescue of his nephew Lot. The contrast alongside Lot's abandonment of that same covenant. Remember, he is righteous Lot. Also notice how the Lord has prepared Abram. He had shown a trust in the promise in terms of the land and self in his generosity toward Lot, allowing him the free choice to settle wherever he wished. And now he shows a trust in his promise in the terms of this specific selection of the men who will join him in battle. They are 318 born of his house who went in pursuit as far as Dan. Now he must not think that this is all of those who were pitched their tents alongside Abram. The meaning of the original has a sense of those who joined him in terms of his commitment to the Lord. I would suggest to you that it's likely that these are the people who were converted in Haran after the call he received at Ur and while he lived with his father Terah until his death. The souls that he had won in Haran. This is the core group, the 318, the converts who rose with God's chosen. And the Hebrew here is dynamic. He led forth 318 of them. Literally, it draws out 318. This symbolic idea of a sword being brought from its sheath. And they, too, with their weapons raised, are ready. Quiver and bow, swords sharpened, spears shining, held up in a shout as Abram leads them at a fast pace through the hills toward the Alliance forces. Although the Alliance has had a day's start, they're moving slowly, don't they? Burdened with booty. Abram is the warrior king, and 120 miles later, he catches up to them at the border of the land of promise. A scout returns to tell them the enemy is sighted. That's the reference to Dan that was on the border. Now remember, the veil is removed here for us briefly. We see Abram in his true colors, acting as the king of the land that is his by right and will be inherited by his offspring. This is Abram's Mount of Transfiguration, when his glory is clearly, it brightly revealed to those closest to him. This is the moment he foreshadows our Savior so clearly. Our Lord Jesus did not sit idly by in heaven waiting for us to deserve redemption. Neither was our redemption without trial and humiliation. Yet our Savior left the glory to come after you and to die for you. The alliance is unaware of Abram's small band. We see a foreshadowing here of Gideon's 300, don't we? Of David against Goliath. The Lord Jesus against devil, sin, and death. The Lord's invisible hosts rise to join Abram, God's warrior. Kedolo Omer has no reason to be concerned. Every people in the north have been enslaved or destroyed. 
No doubt they slept well every night on the march home. Celebration and debauchery. And, of course, Abram attacks at their weakest at night. He divides his forces to trick the sleeping troops that his strength is much larger than it is. His point is to raise riot, to spread panic. Swords and cries, men dying. It's likely that Kedalomer himself is killed in the first few minutes. Leaderless, in panic, they take to the king's highway. They're on their way back fast to Mesopotamia and safety. Abram knew exactly what to do. Keep up the pressure. Keep up the pressure. We can imagine him shouting to his troops, do all you can to keep up the scare. Keep them frightened. And the rout abandons their spoil as they flee northward on the plain. All they had taken left behind. Stragglers are killed, the rear guard under continual attack. It goes on for another three days, another 40 miles, until significantly outside of the land of promise. And so Lot and his possessions are rescued, and this amazing feat draws to a close. Now Moses wants us to to just pause and just consider in awe what we've witnessed. How he carefully chronicles the campaign of this alliance. Their great victories. Nothing. They drop in the bucket. Abram had become God's fit instrument. God was with him as he moved through the hills. He was with him when he descended on the encampment at night. As he pursued with deadly earnestness along the highway, Abram trusted the promise. And in Egypt, he had stumbled into distrust. Now he's living in profound trust. And we see it in this evidence. We see Christ in the man, Abram. This is how our own Savior is portrayed in the Gospels. Christ's victory. His resurrection, his exaltation and glory. These two steps, his resurrection and ascension, are bound together. The prince of the world being driven out, as John Gospels tells us in chapter 12. When we consider this evening's New Testament reading in Revelation 19, the cycles of seals and trumpets, of bowls, culminate in the vision of Christ, his eyes blazing with fire, his robe dipped in blood, mounted on a white horse, are all images drawn directly from the Old Testament description of God's great warrior in Isaiah 63. Armies of heaven following Christ the warrior, and all the enemies of the sons and daughters of Abraham by faith are laid low and destroyed and we are saved my dear friend whenever the pressure is upon you whenever you consider the times where you might be isolated or alone you are not Christ has gained the victory it encourages us it stabilizes us just as it did Abram those many centuries ago Christ is king and we are saved in him. Hallelujah. Amen.
thank you for listening. You can find out more about us by going to our website, allsoulsnj.org. There, you can support our mission by making a one-time donation or starting a podcast member subscription by clicking the Support the Show link under the Contact Us tab. You can also support us in prayer by clicking the Email Newsletter tab at the top. All Souls Anglican Church. Simple Church. Ancient Truth. Real People. New Life.